Hello and welcome to the MIT Press Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Gondak, and today I'm speaking with Robert Ayers about his new book, The Bubble Economy, Is Sustainable Growth Possible? Robert Ayers, an American-born physicist and economist, is Emeritus Professor of Economics and Political Science at NCIET, the International Graduate Business School. He's the author or co-author of many books, including, with Benjamin War, The Economic Growth Engine, How Energy and Work Drive Prosperity. Robert Ayers, thanks for being on the MIT Press Podcast today. Well, thank you. The subtitle of your book, The Bubble Economy, is the question, is sustainable growth possible? Are you thinking of a return to the post-war economies of the West up to the 1970s as an example of what sustainable growth should look like? Yes, in the sense that we'd like to have something that's a little smoother than what we're seeing right now, uh, without the um, things like like the um, financial crash that occurred in 2008. But I would say no in, in one respect, that is, most economic growth since the Industrial Revolution, and certainly in the last century, was primarily driven... Uh, heavily dependent on the use of fossil fuel energy resources, and that dependence is unsustainable and cannot continue indefinitely for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is the possibility, or I think a very strong probability, of climate change. I mentioned the 70s earlier, and if you think about that era as a transitional era from the post-war economies to the neoliberal regimes of Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, two thinkers who come to mind as guiding forces of that transition are the economist Milton Friedman and the author Ayn Rand. Of the two, who do you think most shaped the neoliberal order more? Well, of course, Milton Friedman was very influential, and the Chicago School is very influential, and he was very influential there. But I would say that in a sort of non-intellectual sense, uh, it's been Ayn Rand's influence that has been more malign, more important. Ronald Reagan was was a fan of hers. Uh, Alan Greenspan, who was he was um, very much influenced by her objectivism. Her idea that the world consists of two groups of people, the makers and the moochers, uh, is far from reality. She also had an idea which she never expressed clearly enough to be tagged. But that idea was that somehow the economy works so perfectly if you leave it alone, that is without any any influence by interference by government, that there will be no externalities. An externality is something that happens when a transaction, an economic transaction of some for, uh, some sort between, say, a buyer and a seller, or between a maker and a user, affects people other than those who create the, the transaction. And in an urban world, you need public services. You can't live without them. And public services have to be provided by government. And so the idea of small government doesn't make any sense in the modern world. Um, and Ayn Rand never seemed to grasp that. Let's talk about one of those views you hear about in neoliberal discussions, that only the wealthy create jobs, and if you raise their taxes or hinder how they use their capital, it's society's loss since that wealth could have been used in job creation. Does the evidence back this up? No. My reading of the evidence doesn't back that up. I was impressed by uh, a blog from a guy who writes for, the, for Forbes magazine, I think, who has made himself uh, quite famous in the blogography or the blogosphere by saying that uh, we shouldn't tax wealthy people at all. We should give them money back. Well, because they're the job creators. And, and we have, if you think about it, yeah, uh, some 
of the great wealth creators are in the in the top percent. There are some like that. I mean, the people who've created Apple and Google and, and other uh, Western you know, Silicon Valley organizations seem to be in that category, and I don't have any problem with them being very wealthy. But when you look at the owners and creators of hedge funds, equity, private equity funds, uh, or even the chief executives of most large companies, and certainly the large banks, I don't see any evidence at all that they create wealth or or jobs. They certainly are very good at uh, moving wealth from the general society into their own pockets, very good at influencing politics in their behalf, but in virtually, well, certainly in the last few weeks, virtually every day I hear about or read about or it's on television, a company, let's call it XYZ Corporation, is going to lay off 5,000 more workers. And they're going to do it in order to increase their profitability. And uh, they don't mention it, but that will also increase the compensation of the chief executives and the executive um, suite because it's all tied to the profitability of the company and the, and the, uh, and the price of the stock. Now, are they, those guys creating jobs or are they destroying jobs? My, you know, I haven't seen a very academic study of this, but my strong impression is that they destroy more jobs than they create. Well, when you look at the financialization of the economy, you might say that at the beginning of the 1980s, there was a legitimate concern about breaking up the conglomerates that are formed in the 60s and 70s that weren't using their capital effectively but that the number of firms that should have been broken up were far smaller than we were led to believe, and that a process that should have been somewhat limited began to look for new territories to conquer. And that if you look at it from a strictly economic point of view, financialization doesn't really make anything or create wealth. It just redistributes it. Yes, I think I could agree with almost all of that. There's some academic work that has contributed to that, and I think that that particular academic work has done a lot of harm. The argument that shareholder value should be the primary legal responsibility of corporate managers. That that doctrine, which is taught in most business schools, and I've been living recently in a business school, although I don't agree with the doctrine, um, that doctrine has been, to a large extent, responsible for the not-too-bad reputation of the corporate, you know, the raiders and activists and so on. They they have gotten away with with a better public you know, press than they really deserve. The whole argument has become much sort of more out of the open just recently in in the case of Apple, which has got a large amount of money, $150 billion or close to that, sitting in overseas banks mostly, not doing any good. And if an activist like Carl Icahn uh, argues that they should do something useful with that money, like create jobs, in the United States, I would agree. But what Carl Icahn proposes, not is that they use the money to create jobs, but they should use it to buy back stock, which would increase Carl Icahn's personal wealth. Uh, in the case of Apple or, or other companies that have large pots of money sitting usually overseas somewhere, uh, I think what we need to see is, is those companies spending that money 
in a much more socially useful way. And by the way, I have a suggestion for that. So what is your suggestion? What should these companies that are sitting on mounts of cash do? Well, I, I don't want to speak about any particular company. Uh, there are several trillion dollars sitting around not being put to much use. Now, you ask me what should the corporate world be doing with its accumulated profits? And the answer is a lot of things. The one I have in mind is to use a good share of that excess capital to start a serious process of decarbonizing the world economy. And that means finding substitutes, effective substitutes for internal combustion engines because we don't have a substitute for oil. And there are ways of doing everything that internal combustion engines do without burning oil. That's basically the idea that I'm talking about. I call it decarbonization as a process. What I really mean is developing renewables faster than they're going to be re- develop without any interference by the government. If we if we just let it happen on its own, it probably will happen, but it'll be too slow because we've got so many trillions of, of dollars invested in the existing system. And those investments will have to be depreciated. Some of them will have to be abandoned. And that means new investments have to be made in their place. It won't happen unless uh, there are incentives, clear incentives to make it happen. And having spent the last 20 plus years at a business school, I feel pretty confident to say that it won't happen unless it can be profitable. Then the question is, how can that whole process be profitable? And I think there's an answer to that. So to recap, we have a lot of money sitting on the sidelines, an economic issue that you believe is the defining economic issue of the new century, the decarbonization of the economy in order to maintain a sustainable level of growth. So can the financialization tools that led to the growth in the bubble economy be used to get this capital off the sidelines and back into a better rate of return than they are currently getting? The answer to that is emphatically yes. Um, Securitization is one of the tools. If you think about what happened between 2003 and 2007, what was happening was that rising real estate prices for housing primarily had created, well, justified the market. The market was not created by, by rising prices, but it justified, that, that trend justified the creation of a business. And the business was to sell subprime mortgages mortgages requiring payments that were lower than than government uh, bonds would would pay. But the mortgages were sold to people who couldn't afford them, as we now know. But but the people who were selling them had no um, stake in them, no skin in the game, as they say. They were simply packaging up those mortgages into uh, mortgage-based securities called CDOs. And selling those, which were supposedly paying a high return compared to a government bond, to investment funds, investors with with long-term goals, mainly pension funds or insurance companies who had to prepare, had to be prepared to pay out in the future. And right now, it is the case that those funds and insurance companies are all underfunded. They don't have in their 
portfolios investments that will pay as much as they are committed to pay out. So they need profitable investments, long-term investments. The key to all this would be to believe that the price of oil in particular, hydrocarbons generally, not coal, but but oil and, and gas, are probably going to rise over the next 20 to 30 years. Uh, certainly, if China, India, Brazil, and so on are able to continue growing, that it's, uh, that will create enough demand for liquid fuels to assure that the present price will continue to to rise on average, not smoothly, but it will rise. Now, if you believe that, and at the same time, if you believe that the cost and therefore the price of renewable technologies, wind, solar power, but also others, uh, tidal power, geothermal power, low head hydro, there are a large number of technologies that can produce energy, which will get cheaper and cheaper. And because of the economies of scale, the faster we create or encourage markets for those renewables, or also for technologies that improve efficiency uh, uh, at the end use, all of those things will bring the cost down, the cost of alternatives. So you have rising price of oil and rising cost of energy converted from oil or power work done by using oil on the one hand and a declining cost of alternatives on the other hand. That's At the moment, fossil fuel-based power is still the winner in most places. It's still the cheapest in most places, but primarily that is because it's had an exemption. It's not been forced to pay the cost of all the harm that it does. And the harm done by coal smoke, for example, coal being a good part of the fuel of electric power produced in the United States and in Western Europe too. The harm done, the health damage is done health costs done by by the smoke alone is greater than the revenues of the coal companies. It's an incredible fact, but the, those coal companies and the users of the coal do not pay those costs. The Chinese are beginning to notice this problem, and uh, but we in the West have not had the guts to force those coal companies to pay the costs of of the use of the product that they're producing. That is the reason that we haven't yet seen a great financial advantage from alternatives, from production of of renewables. But that financial advantage will come, and anything that can be done to make it come quicker is to the good. And that basically is my message, that um, uh, what... What the financial community did between 2003 and 2007 could be done again based on the assumption of higher priced oil. Instead of increasing real estate prices, start from the assumption that oil prices are going to go up and take it from there. What we need uh, in place of mortgage-based bonds would be bonds or or some kind of financial product based on a basket of alternative technologies, alternative energy technologies. And that's fairly easy to 
to say. Uh, won't, won't be quite so easy to do, but I think it's doable, and uh, I'd like to have a hand, if possible, in doing it. <laughs> Robert Ayers, the author of The Bubble Economy, Is Sustainable Growth Possible? Thanks for being on the MIT Press Podcast today. Thanks for having me. For more information about this and other titles, please visit our website at mitpress.mit.edu. Don't forget, you can find the MIT Press on Facebook, www.facebook.com slash MIT Press. And you can also follow us on Twitter, where we are at MIT Press. Thanks for listening to this episode of the MIT Press Podcast. Copyright 2014, the MIT Press, all rights reserved.